Thank you guys, music team. Our hope is only Jesus. Is that a reality in exam week? It's reality all the time. He's all we've got. Uh, The wheels are coming off this thing if Christ is not holding them together at all times. And praise God he is. Well, welcome back. We're getting close to the end of the semester. You believe it? Yeah, there's, uh, there is dread and excitement all at the same time, isn't it? Dread because you're wishing you could get a few more weeks uh, to get a few more of those assignments done, but excitement because you know that in a few weeks the baby will be born and all will be better. You're like, guess what? what? We're singles. What? That doesn't, work. that doesn't work here. This is a college ministry, and I'm a man, and I've never experienced that, so... All right, let's get out of this. All right, we're on part three of uh, our personal evangelism series. And after tonight, we're going to have one more left. So, you know, we, had, we finished up 1 John, and we had like this four-week period at the end of the semester, and we just inserted a topical series in here. So we got one more left after tonight, and we wanted to address this topic of personal evangelism for a few reasons. For starters, there is a lot of confusion about evangelism today, and confusion in the church, confusion um, all around, and there's confusion about outreach, confusion about conversion, and we looked at that example from uh, Babylon B, Elon Musk, uh, their attempts to evangelize him, and, uh, and then their just false assurance that he, uh, they won him over to Christ. And so that was just one example of many that we could cite to just show the the confusion in the church today about evangelism. So if we're going to evangelize faithfully, then we need to understand what evangelism actually is according to Scripture. So we looked at that in week one. And just for review, if we could put it simply, evangelism is just proclaiming the gospel. Explaining the gospel, teaching the gospel, proclaiming Christ. But we gave a slightly longer definition in that week, and it went like this. Evangelism is the preaching of Christ and the confronting of idolatry with the aim to persuade to a life of discipleship. So it is the preaching of Christ, and the backside of that coin is to preach Christ is to confront idolatry, because Christ is our only hope, like we sang, and there are false hopes. So we, we confront those, we proclaim Christ, with the aim to persuade. Our goal is to see them come to Jesus. It's not just like we're going to data drop and, and run. We want, to, we want to try to persuade them to come to Christ, and it's unto a life of following him, a life of discipleship. So Scripture tells us what it is. We looked at that in depth. But it also gives us a model for how it's carried out. This is still in week one. We learned that, it, that evangelism is carried out first and foremost from beginning to end by who? God. It's not a trick question. God. God is the great evangelist. He is sovereign in salvation and he carries out evangelism from start to finish. But he uses means. And the means is through the church, through bold preaching and godly living. Right? As we proclaim the gospel, people are saved, and as we back it up in the way that we live, we confirm the gospel, we adorn the gospel, to use the Bible's terminology in Titus, by how we live. And so God initiates and, and sees our evangelism through, and, it's, and he, he works through means of bold preaching, godly living, and he does it sort of corporately by raising up evangelists who then are, are identified, trained, sent out by the church, and He does it by the day-to-day witness of individual believers in our community. So, in our case, through our little sub-ministry of Boundless, in our respective spheres of influence. That was all week one. Understanding evangelism, what it is and how it's carried out. In week two, we looked at the what was maybe we could call the arguably the greatest hindrance to evangelism, and what is that? Was it? Fear, fear, and in particular, uh, largely the fear of man. Remember we talked about that? The fear of man. So we fear all kinds of things. We fear conflict. We fear being marginalized. We fear being mocked. Uh, We're afraid we might lose a job. 
We might, we might lose a friendship, a family member. We might make a family relationship awkward. Uh, we may even fear for our lives in some cultures. So fear abounds in the heart, and we learned last week, or last time that we were together, that we've got to face these fears with biblical motivation. So we need to learn to live by conviction in the truth and not by what we feel or what we fear. And so we looked at those convictions. We we laid out a lot of them um, last time we were together. Convictions like that heaven and hell, they're actual realities. Convictions like that we are truly blessed people if we're mocked for Christ's sake, like like Jesus tells us. And perhaps the greatest conviction of all is that God is completely sovereign as we share the gospel. He will save his people. And he will save them through our weak, frail, faltering efforts. And that was week two. We looked at a lot more, but you can go back and, and check out that message if you, if you missed it. Motivating evangelism is huge. It's huge. The scriptures give us robust motivation to do the hard work of evangelism. And we've got to believe it. If we don't know those truths, we're not going to overcome the fear of man and, um, and evangelize. So, now you might be saying, okay, Clay, well, evangelism is now clear in my mind, or it's getting clearer. I know that evangelism means that I'm, I'm to explain Christ to an unbeliever and press that unbeliever to trust Jesus. And I'm motivated now. I'm internalizing these convictions. It's not perfect, but I'm still kind of coming up empty. What does this look like day to day to faithfully evangelize? Maybe you're a new believer. You've not done much of this. What does this look like? Am I just always preaching at people? We're kind of having like Acts 2 moments, you know, in my dorm room. Maybe. How can I get into these kind of gospel conversations that you're talking about? Well, that's what I want to try to address tonight. As you can see on the screen, we are calling tonight's lesson Practicing Evangelism. And I don't mean like we're going to practice on each other. I mean like actually fulfilling it, like doing it. Practicing Evangelism. I want to help us start mapping out what faithful evangelism could look like in the day-to-day. Now, again, you know, as we start on the, with the biblical framework in week one, we look at motivations, now we're getting into sort of practices and then strategies. We're, again, getting kind of off the beaten path a bit, and I'm giving you applicational type stuff, so just keep that in mind. There's no one-size-fits-all when it comes to evangelizing someone, and God often, as they say, um, actually, I can't remember the saying, he strikes a straight lick with a crooked stick or something like that. Um, meaning, you know, we can get our nice, neat methods of evangelism all tidied up, and then you might just have the new convert out there just saying things that are half true, um, because that's all they know, and somebody's saved. You know, so, again, not endorsing bad methods, but there's no silver bullet when it comes to sharing the gospel. That's my point. We want to get the message right, um, as right as we can, but, again, God is sovereign in this endeavor. So what I want to do tonight is to give you uh, nine practices that will help you faithfully evangelize. All right? You're like, nine? No! This is going to be a two-hour message. I took lots of stuff out, and I still had nine, okay? I know you guys too well. I hear the nervous laughter. I I don't even hear the nervous. I can feel it. I can feel it in the room. Nine? All right, nine practices. These are highly applicable, okay? Nine practices are going to help us faithfully evangelize. All right, number one, don't assume the gospel. Number one, do not assume the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, in some contexts, it is tempting to just assume that the people around you are Christians, Can you think of any context where that might be applicable? Where I'm from, everyone went to church, and they were generally polite and moral people. Liberty similar? I mean, why else would you go to a Christian college if you're not Christian? So we think. The only problem with that is people are confused about what it means to be a Christian. Is that fair? Jesus warns us that many people are often deceived 
They're deceived into thinking they're Christians when they've never actually repented of their idolatry and they've never actually bowed the knee to Christ. Matthew 7. I've got it listed up there for you. You can write that one down. So, Jesus' warning there is is clear. We're in danger of assuming the gospel when we never get clarity about the spiritual state of those around us. We are in danger of assuming the gospel when we never get clarity about the spiritual state of those around us. We just assume that they're Christians. And I had a, a very vivid experience of this early on in my Christian life. Shortly after I was saved, when I was still in college, I think I was about a junior, I came home for, for a summer and I was doing some work for an extended family member. He'd been a Methodist his entire life. He'd even taught Sunday school in the Methodist church. And we were out working one afternoon. It was kind of finishing up and I was about to head home. And he was kind of in this kind of rare moment, just kind of gushing about how good of a young man I had become. And you know, I kind of hung my head, and I just, like, had to stop him. I was like, look, I am not a good man. Uh, I tried to explain to him that I wasn't good at all. Uh, I had just learned about how actually bad I was, and I lived a duplicitous life in high school. And so I tried to just start explaining all that to him, and he just kind of got visibly upset with me. And he kept telling me that I was a good person. So I finally asked him, well, then, then why did Jesus have to die? Like, if, if I'm this good person, you're this good person. And he said, I'll never forget it, he, he said it was to give us an example of, of love. And then he said it wasn't for an atoning sacrifice. And then he went on to tell me that everyone was going to be saved in the end. And I was absolutely shocked. For years, I thought this relative was a Christian you know, even before I was saved, and so did everyone else in my family. We had family get-togethers once a week growing up, so it's not like I saw this guy, he was from Timbuktu, you know. So I, I, I lived with him my entire upbringing. We had assumed the gospel and never got to know him enough at that level to see that he really didn't believe the Bible's gospel at all. And most of you are at LU, and praise God, there are many believers there. But I might encourage you not just to assume that your roommates are Christians because they go to Campus Com or they listen to Christian music or they seem relatively moral. I read part of a book this week about Kevin Ruse. I'm assuming I'm saying his last name the right way, but he was that um, undercover journalist who came to LU and he, he posed as a Christian and he wrote an expose about conservative evangelicals. And he found out that if he went with the flow almost everyone assumed that he was a Christian. They took his word for it, but they never pressed him on under, like his understanding of Jesus or how Christ was transforming his life or, or anything like that. So don't assume the gospel, and that leads to the next practice. How would we avoid assuming that people are Christian? Well, we need to understand biblical conversion and look for its evidences. That's a long point, so we'll give you some time to write that down. We need to understand what biblical conversion is. So if we're going to unpack the counterfeit, we need to know the real thing. And then we need to look for its evidence as it's played out in how people live their lives. All right, you got it? Still working on it. Pretty close. So what is conversion? How would you answer that question? Think about it for a minute. What is conversion? We might think about it from kind of two vantage points. We've got the human vantage point. From the human side, conversion is when someone turns from idolatry to entrust themselves fully to Jesus. All right, so they're headed this way in their idolatry, rebellion, and sin. And conversion is an about-face, repentance, right? And we, we entrust ourselves to Christ to follow Him. Or to put it simply, conversion happens when people believe in Jesus. 
when they abandoned themselves fully to Christ. Paul describes the Thessalonian conversion like this, and I think I've listed that up there in, in our notes. He describes it like this in 1 Thess 1.8. He says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So from the human side, conversion is when someone turns from their rebellion, sin, idolatry, to Christ to entrust themselves fully to Him. And from God's side is our next vantage point, and really the ultimate vantage point. From God's side, conversion is when He enlivens a soul. And I said enlivens. When He enlivens a soul. He brings life to a soul. It's when God acts upon a dead, unbelieving, and enslaved heart, and God makes it alive. We're putting those together. They happen almost simultaneously, but God is the initiator. God is the reason that you believe. Faith is the evidence of your new birth. Like We saw that in, in 1 John. But they happen together almost simultaneously, and Paul talks about conversion from this vantage point in Ephesians 2. We've studied this out a couple years back. He says, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. Spiritual deadness. And fast forward to verse 4. But God, that's the subject, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So conversion then, from God's perspective and and ours means new life. Conversion means a new heart. Conversion means new inclinations that you did not have before. The sin that we once loved, in other words, we now hate. And the Christ we once despised, or maybe marginalized, lived as though he were unimportant or marginally important, That Christ is now center stage. He is revered. He is first place. He is our king. We have bowed to him and he has rescued us. We were once traitors, but now we are received as royal sons in Christ. And that's new life. That's conversion. And where there's life... There's signs of it everywhere. When a baby is alive, it grows. And so do Christians. We just finished the study of 1 John where we saw this uh, played out almost in every passage. Uh, We saw some evidences of what we might say is real conversion. So what are they? Just give you a review quick. Sensitivity to sin, right? Are Christians sinless? No. No. But Christians are sensitive to sin. 1 John 1, 9. We're broken by it. We admit to it. We confess it honestly. We don't hide it. We don't try to cover it up. And so, ask yourself this. Are my roommates openly admitting their sin as sin? Or do they call their sinful fear a disorder? Do they blame their bitterness on what happened to them? Are they living as perpetual victims? Or do they humbly take ownership of their sin before God and depend wholly on Christ? So sensitivity to sin. Love for the church, number two. 1 John 3.10 Our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, our spiritual family, is one of the clearest indicators that someone has been converted. Someone is a new creature in Christ. If someone has the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity dwelling within them because the third person of the Trinity loves the church. Our willingness to serve the saints and to meet their needs indicates that we are converted. Our desire to be among the people of God, to commit to a local church, to be patient and to bear with those who are hard to love, that's an evidence that you really do know the Savior. Because it shows that you've tasted His love. Because that's what his love's all about. Loving you when you were unlovely. 
moving toward you when you were in rebellion and sin, forgiving you when you didn't deserve it. And if you've tasted that, you've seen that he's good, you're going to bend that out. Not perfectly, sometimes not even consistently <laughs> in the beginning. But you're going to learn to do that over time. You're going to, you're going to, there's this love for the church that's going to grow. The, the, the church is where you want to be. Before it was stuffy, you know, didn't really like the hymns or whatever maybe, but now the hymns have truth, you know, and, and you just, even if you prefer the different genre of music, like you're able to sing these things. And you're able to be with the people of God because you, you love the saints. So do your roommates, do your classmates show this kind of love for other believers? Do they show this kind of desire to be among the people of God? This kind of hunger for church? Or are are they quick to excuse why they can and should remain bitter? Why they can't forgive? Why they won't attend church? Love for the church. Third, growth in obedience. Growth in obedience. John tells us that we can know with confidence that we really do know Christ when we grow in keeping His commands. 1 John 2, 3. When we want to know what Christ has commanded, and when we strive to keep what He's commanded, it shows that we really do trust Jesus. Just think about that. Imagine the kid telling his parent that he trusts them, and then never doing what the parent says. What would you say? He said, well, you don't trust your parent. You trust yourself. You trust your own assessments of what you think is good and best for you. Not what your parents think. Because your parents are telling you to do this and you're just ignoring them. So our obedience shows that we really do trust God. So do your roommates and classmates hunger and thirst for righteousness? Are Christ's commands sweet? Or do they accuse you of legalism when you talk about obedience. So, that's our second practice. And it's tied to the first. We don't just want to be deceived into thinking everyone's a Christian, and then that means we do need to be clear about what true conversion is and the signs of true conversion. But it doesn't stop there. Okay? We need to take a proactive interest in unbelievers. Take a proactive interest in unbelievers. So instead of being frustrated with those who claim Christ, but they don't evidence any signs of conversion, we should move toward them in love. Did you catch that? What did I just say? When you're doing this? Okay, we should move toward them in love instead of being... I'm going to do this after every sentence. Be careful. Instead of being frustrated with the people who are claiming Christ and they're calling you legalistic, okay, instead of being frustrated with them, we should move toward them in love. It's especially tempting to get offended or to be put off by professing Christians who mock us for being legalistic or too zealous for Christ. It's easy to get frustrated when they malign His Word and they don't go to church but we need to rise above that. We need to take a proactive interest in these people who are most likely deceived and are headed to hell. Now, we've been talking about professing Christians for a while, but this temptation to move away is especially tempting in the overtly secular world. So some of you folks who are working 40, 50 60 hours in the, in the work world, you're like, oh, the students. Like, wow, wouldn't that be nice to be a student in a Christian campus? I'm, you know, here hammering it out, you know, in, in the workplace. Well, sometimes the, the tendency can be to sort of cloister away from unbelievers. We might fear being tainted by them in some way. Their lifestyle might make us uncomfortable. It may even be a bit alarming. Recently, some of you probably heard this story, my uh, wife interacted with an open Satanist at a Walmart pickup. Yeah. I mean, he was the employee. He was the Walmart worker. So, walks up to the car, rolls the window down, and I I don't even remember the story super well, but 
when the gist of it was, like he's asking her, was it your zodiac sign? Where's Mary? Is it your zodiac sign? Yeah. And he's just like, saying, like there was this, she's projecting this intense, uh, what was it? Intense energy. I was like, yeah, she's probably alarmed by you, bro. Um, picking up some intense energy from her. What's her zodiac sign? And um, so he was asking her these provocative questions. She was uncomfortable. I was even more uncomfortable when she was telling me about it. Um, but she engaged this guy. You know, kids are in the back, you know, Satanist outside the door. And <laughs> she engaged him. She confronted him in that conversation that he was said and told him he was deceived about the things he, had, he was believing and that there was hope in Christ and the gospel. And uh, just, just went for the jugular. And he was like, yeah, appreciate that, you know. Um, and so I, I think all in all, good conversation. But my point is, you know, that alarmed me, even as the husband. And I'm like, yeah, you know, don't go back to that, Walmart. But Mary's like, why not? Like, he's there and needs Christ. And so that's just an example about just how tempted, how tempted we can be to sort of pull away in sort of human fear or just concern. But whatever our differences with unbelievers are, and they're often very great, We've got to move toward them in love like our Lord did toward us. Do you realize you are a Satanist? According to Ephesians 2? You are following the prince of the power of the air. And so was I. In my deadened state. That man was no worse than I was. And we have to move toward people because our Lord moved toward us when we openly hated Him. Christ proactively pursued us and loved us and we killed Him. But He won us over in love. Brought us from traitor, murderer status to beloved children, sons, inheritors of the universe. And so it's helpful for me when I feel the chasm of difference to remember that not only was I the same as them, but I'm also made in God's image like they are. Even as an unbeliever, they're still made in God's image. And that's Genesis 1.28. And they're made in God's image even if they might try to scratch it out. But the funny thing is, when you're a creature and you're stamped with God's image, uh, it's an irrevocable stamp. Like, you can't scratch it out. We're his creatures. We reflect him de facto, and we will have to give an account to him, every one of us, whether we admit it or not. That means there are many things to appreciate about unbelievers, many things that we can identify in them because they're in God's image, many things we can even learn from an unbeliever, points of connection. So what does your unbelieving neighbor enjoy? Why do they enjoy it so much? Learn their family. Learn their background. Hear their story. Take an interest in them as a fellow image bearer. They're dead, deceived, but they're made in God's image. So being proactive then means that we need to be thoughtful and even creative for how we can begin building relationships with folks to share the gospel. We don't need to wait on unbelievers to come to us. You need to go to them. Find other, find other points of contact. Find some common grace areas of interest to build relationships around. Things you can identify. And the point here is just don't wait around. Don't expect unbelievers to come to you, even though God will often bring them to you. Um, like that example I just, I just shared. He's providential and kind in that way. Um, but the Lord wants us to be proactive here too. And Talking about being proactive here, I'll give you another example of, on this side, a convicting example. Uh, one of the most convicting experiences I've ever had when it comes to being proactive happened, to, happened a few years ago. One Friday when I was at home with my family, the doorbell rang. A man stood on my doorstep, clearly wasn't American, spoke with an a almost hard-to-understand accent, but I recognized it. It was a Nepali accent, and I've been there a few times. So I was like, whoa, what's this guy doing here? So I invited him in. 
uh, we chatted for a little while, and then he began to share the gospel with me. And I thought, whoa, look, I'm, hey, I'm a believer too, and we both laughed, rejoiced together. He was a pastor, I'm a pastor. And he told me that he was here visiting a friend in the States, and he just so happened to be staying with someone in my neighborhood, and he had some free time, so he had decided to go door-to-door evangelizing in my neighborhood. I stood there shocked as he recounted conversation after conversation that he had had with people on my street. He's not trying to grow his church. His church is in Nepal. He's on my street evangelizing my neighbors. And in one afternoon, that Nepali man had shared the gospel with more people on my street than I had in two years of living there. He was proactive, and he was interested in the souls of unbelievers. Now, you might be thinking, well, I don't know if I could just go up and cold turkey evangelize like that guy did. You know, there's maybe some cultural differences between Nepal and America, and people are a lot more private. That's one of the things he was saying. He was like, wow, people are very private here. <laughs> like, tell me about it, you know. We get it. Well, that leads me to my, our fourth practice. As you're moving toward unbelievers, also try to find ways to serve unbelievers. Try to find some ways, again, as you're thinking about being creative and striking up these relationships and find, trying to find commonalities, points of contact, find ways to serve them. Now, I've listed a, a, a group of references here. I'll kind of mention them as I go along. But over and over in Scripture, we're told to serve others, and we're told to serve particularly the church, but also unbelievers. Jesus, give you some examples. Jesus tells us to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate us. Luke 6, 27. To love and to do good to those who hate us. And then a few verses later, even to lend money to them, expecting nothing in return and simply looking to the reward that will come from our Father. Chapter 6, verse 35. Over in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us explicitly to let our light shine before others. What does that mean? Let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, 16. So that means we need to think about how we could bless that unbelieving coworker. In particular, that unbelieving coworker that makes life very difficult for you. How can you bless that person? How can you mimic your father, who Jesus describes in Luke 6.35, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil? How could you go the extra mile for your next door neighbor? or your unbelieving mother, or your irritating roommate. Don't look at each other. Will they take advantage of my kindness? Are they going to take advantage of me? Are they going to get hurt? Yes. They will. Will you get hurt? Yes. You will. Did Christ get hurt? Yes. He did. Does that, does that matter? Not ultimately. Not according to Christ. We show kindness, he says, expecting, quote, expecting nothing in return. Nothing from them, at least. We have a reward that is coming from our Father in heaven, he says. And we look to that. We mimic him. That's our motivation. But the hope, the ultimate hope, is, like Jesus says, that they will see our good deeds and glorify our Father. Our great hope and prayer is that the Lord will use this sacrificial love to overwhelm them and to draw them to experience his love. 
as we return good for evil at home, as we return good for evil in the workplace, as we return good for evil in our various spheres of influence, class, your apartment, wherever it is, we will stand out in the world and we will, like Titus, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That was spoken to slaves. How they should work hard for their masters. Even if they were mistreated. So that they would adorn the gospel. They would beautify the gospel. That they would show its transforming power in that oppressive context. And we know that the Lord is sovereign in salvation, and so He will use that kind of sacrifice as a means to draw His elect to faith. And as you're loving others and and you're conversing with them, that leads to my fifth practice here, and I would just say, as you're talking, just be open about your Christian life. Be open about your Christian life. There's a temptation to kind of conceal that, you know, kind of like whip it out, you know, with the opportune moment. But that, it should be reversed. Because that's that's not reality. Christ is Lord... And that lordship informs everything for us. So one author describes this concept of like being open about your Christian life. He, I guess it's kind of a helpful phrase. He calls it chatting your faith. Um, but here's how he describes it. I thought this was helpful. By chatting our faith, what I mean is that we need to make Christianity an everyday natural part of our conversations with people. And his point, I think, and, and I agree, is that Christians, as Christians, Christ informs everything for us. That's what we confess when we claim that Jesus is Lord. He is, influ- he is influencing all of life, all of our life, and he wants us to live and talk openly about that level of influence. And Paul clearly did this. And I'm always impressed by how Paul models the level of openness with others, including unbelievers. When he went to Thessalonica, this is a good example, when he went to Thessalonica, he began evangelizing them. He says in that letter to them that there was no attempt to deceive this group or to, or to kind of like make things appear different than they were. Like he's just kind of, that's who I am. Great believer, no Christ. There's Jesus. I'm going to tell you about him. Proclaim Christ to them. Verse 3. They lived and spoke openly, not to please the Thessalonians, but to please God. He says that in verse 4. Then he says they were ready to share not only the gospel of God with them, but also their own selves with them. Hear that openness? Verse 8. Paul worked alongside them, no doubt, showing them how the gospel impacts their work ethic. He didn't take a paycheck when he could have taken a paycheck. He rolled up his sleeves. He started working hard to model how the gospel has implications for work. Verse 9. So Paul lived his Christian life openly. And he also had many opportunities to teach them the gospel of God because of it. He knew the lordship of Christ affects everything, and he took every opportunity he had to, do, to help others make that connection. Right? So I just cited work, how the gospel impacts work. I mean, he's showing them that right there. So just think about that for a second. Step back and think, okay, am I connecting Christ to all of my areas of life? Or am I living like a functional atheist in these areas? What areas of life does Jesus inform for you? Does he inform how you take your exams? Will you trust him in the study or fret in anxiety? It's a Christian life issue. It's a discipleship issue. And when you talk to an unbeliever about your exam, and you're tempted to fret together, share about how Jesus is helping you trust him when you are anxious. Even if that kind of raises eyebrows. Like, what? What are you talking about? Maybe not in Liberty, but it might be a secular university. 
How does Christ help you in the workplace to keep working hard, even in difficult circumstances? Talk about your struggles and how the truth, how Christ is helping you think differently, act differently in the workplace. Share that openly. When we talk about Christ like that, what are you, what are you showing? What are you demonstrating? When you invite unbelievers into your life to see how you live, you're showing His Lordship over everything. You're saying, hey, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm trying to trust Jesus in these areas. Christ is relevant to all of life. And I can't tell you how many people I've talked to kind of after the fact that came to faith in Christ simply by hearing how a real believer talks about Jesus. And that believer didn't even know that they were listening in. But saying, I don't have a relationship with Christ like that. I don't know Christ like that person knows Christ, and I want to. And this leads to our sixth practice, and it's closely related. As you're getting to know people, as you're talking, as you're sharing, as you're chatting about Jesus, don't be afraid to press into their life. This is where we get skittish. It's where the fear of man really kicks in. But it's crucial. This is kind of the turning point. Number six, don't be afraid to press into their life. In any evangelism conversation, there comes a moment where you're going to have to, what I'm calling, press in. And it's almost always uncomfortable because there's some measure of confrontation in it. Now let's pause for a minute, press the pause button, and let's think through why confrontation is absolutely necessary in presenting the gospel. Because that's going to fly in the face of like 90% of the methods that you're going to hear. You know, Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. Let me kind of sweet talk you into the gospel. Let me water it down a little bit, take off some of the edge, so that you think Jesus is a nice guy, think he's cool, think he's relevant, and kind of invite him in, think your life will be better if you have Jesus. That's called peddling the gospel. And Paul did not want us to do that. So I'm not saying be rude. Paul was not rude. Paul was conscientious, kind, passionate. But he was honest. And so in this case, I'm saying don't be afraid to press into their life. So why is this absolutely necessary? Well, if we're going to share the gospel... We're going to always have to press in, and that's because at the heart, believers are uh, unbelievers. Excuse me, unbelievers are suppressing the truth, just like each one of us did. Romans 1.18. Every unbeliever, Romans 1.18, is suppressing the truth about God. We've seen that in our study of Romans on Sundays, and Paul goes on to say in that same chapter that unbelievers are deceived. They are worshiping a false god, and they are given over to destructive patterns of sin. You can see that in Romans 1, 21 through 22. They're deceived. They believed a lie. They've worshiped and served a creature rather than a creator. As a result, therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts. And then he goes on and details out what all that is. So there's, there's deception, there's idolatry, and then there's all these destructive sin patterns. So that means no matter how nice these people appear, no matter how moral, no matter how logical, no matter how religious, this is their condition. And the longer that you and I talk with them, the more we get to know them, the more questions we ask, the more we will hear their unbelief. And we will begin to see what they worship. We'll see how they're pursuing solutions that are false hopes. And this usually comes out when they begin to open up about the hardships of their life. So if you want to think like with an unbeliever, where's the pay dirt? It's in that area. Hardships. Either the hardships that are from their own sin, their own sin is caused, maybe they they might not know that it's their own sin that caused it, but a divorce, a child who hates them, a ruptured relationship with their parent, And they're telling you about it. Or 
Maybe it's a hardship that others have caused them. And now they're responding sinfully toward that. There's been some form of abuse or, or whatever it may be. Whatever the case, when sin is involved, guilt abounds. It's universal. Okay, when there's sin, there's guilt. Unbelievers are searing their consciences all the time, but they can't, they can't completely escape the guilt. The guilt is there, and they try to cope with it in ways that seem right to them. They might medicate their sin. They might blame it. They likely will blame it on some other area, their upbringing. Or, talk to people like this, they're just crushed by it. They're crushed by the guilt. They're crushed by the realization that they are monsters inside. Those folks are closest to the kingdom. But my point here is that as we love and get to know unbelievers and they open up to us, we will see the dysfunction of sin and we'll discern how they're deceived. And it's here that we've got to take a deep breath, pray a prayer, and press in. Right? But what do I mean by that? So, again, that Rico Tice guy that I mentioned a moment ago, he calls this, this pressing in moment asking the pain line question. I think that's helpful. And it's painful because it's the kind of questions that are often hard for us to ask. It's painful for us. And it's often painful for the, for the other person. It might offend or it might shut down the conversation. And you could think of it as that moment in the conversation where you kind of, quote, unquote, go there, you know? Like, well, we just, you just went there. Kind of put it on the line. So what do you, give me an example. All right, well, a few weeks ago, I told you about that Chinese guy that I sat next to on the plane. Do you remember that? And he was jamming out to his whatever music he's listening to. And um, it was rough sounding. And so I just, at one point, he took him out, and I said, hey, what do you listen to, you know? And he's like, oh, some sort of hardcore thing. And uh, I was like, why do, why do you like that? Like, what's, what's in it for you? And he said, well, it helps me deal with my anger. I thought about it for a second. <laughs> and it was her pain line question. I said, does it actually help? And he was like, what? You know, I kind of, it, it was that moment, he, when he raised his eyebrows, I probed into his life, he didn't expect me to go there. He didn't expect me to actually call his bluff on the fact that this isn't really working. And in God's providence, it led to a very sweet opportunity to talk about his anger as sin against God, that there is a God, because he had never heard of Jesus. He was atheistic. There is a God. He's going to hold you accountable. That's why you're sin against him. That's why there's all these problems in the world. And Christ died so the angry people could be forgiven and he is, the, he is the king. He's the Christ. He's coming back. We're going to have to give an account to him. And after about a 10-minute conversation, I told you guys last time, he said, if all that's true, it's going to radically change. it has to radically change my life, everything about it. And in a 10-minute conversation, a Chinese guy that had never heard about Jesus saw the implications of the gospel. He didn't repent, but seed was planted in that, that conversation. And it came from that sort of pain line question or that pressing in where I could have just said, you know, in that moment, tempted to just kind of be like, oh, well, he likes that weird music, and I don't. You know, what's he going to say? It's going to be awkward if he gets mad at me on the plane because it's a really long flight, you know. Um, all those things went through my mind. But it's, hey, let's, let's just kind of take one more step forward, you know, trusting Jesus here in that question. So practically, then, if I'm in a conversation and an unbeliever is bleeding all over me, kind of metaphorically, like we're... We're in a conversation that's they're telling me their hardship. I'm often going to find a moment to kind of pause the conversation, then make sure that I'm understanding them as, they're, as they've described themselves. Because usually it's been a monologue for like, you know, 20 minutes. You know, cut weed eating the grass, and there they are. And, uh, and so I'm talking to them, and then just kind of press pause, and I'll say something like, um, you know, make, make sure I'm understanding you. You said X, Y, and Z. Is that right? Yeah. Then I'll say something like, well, the Bible actually addresses this very issue that you're talking to me about. Did you know that? Well, no, I didn't, you know. Do you mind if I reinterpret everything you just said through the Bible's lens? Um, would you be open to that? Can we have a conversation about that? And if it's a you know, big deal, I said, would you be open to studying the Bible with me on that issue and, like, seeing what God has to say about that thing? 
And if I, I typically, my point in sharing that is I, I will ask for permission. You know, it's not like, uh, thus says the Lord. But I think it's just a conscientious way in a kind of private culture to be like, hey, do you mind if I share this with you? Then I'll gently begin to confront their deception with the truth as, as I have opportunity. And this leads really to our seventh practice, and that's this. Be prepared to articulate the gospel. So six and seven here are related, and really seven is more foundational. So if you don't really, if the gospel is kind of fuzzy to you, and you know you believe in Jesus, and you're trying to follow him, but I don't really know where those promises are in the Bible. I don't really know where the Bible talks about sin. I don't really know where, if that's kind of hazy to you, you don't really know how to put the gospel together in a kind of clean, cohesive way, then you're going to be afraid to press into their life because you're not going to know where to go. You're going to be afraid to do number six because it's, hard to, it's going to be hard for you to make that connection. So be prepared to articulate the gospel. I think this is one of the more challenging things is to understand how to get from a conversation like the one I was just describing where the guy's jamming out to his you know, screamo to the gospel, right? There's many ways to do it. There's not just one way. But if we stay with that common conversation where somebody's describing their suffering or pain or their sin to you, how do you go from there to a clear articulation of the gospel? Well, it starts by knowing the gospel deeply and believing it ourselves. So you've got to live by the gospel. If we're daily living by Christ's promises to us in the gospel, then it will be much more intuitive for us to share those same things with other people. We've talked about this at at, at length in another series on the gospel, but you can think of the gospel message along four headings. Remember them? God, man, Christ, response, right? So again, you're not just going to go up to someone and say, God, man, Christ, response, right? But they're headings, okay, to kind of keep things straight in your mind. So God, who is he? He's our creator. He's holy, righteous, and good. All things flow from him. He's eternal and self-existent. He doesn't need us. We are his creatures, and we are accountable to him. Number two, that's who man is. We're created for God, for His glory, for His mission. And we have fallen far from that. We've rebelled against Him. We've sought life apart from Him. We talk about sin, you know, under that heading. Number three, Christ, what has He done about that? God, in His great mercy, became man and died for our sins on the cross so that we could be forgiven. He lived a life that we should have lived so that we could have righteousness. And He went to death and came out on the other side so that we can be raised and overcome our final enemy, death, that everyone's scared of in in Western culture, and for good reason. And then fourth, a response. What are you going to do about this? This king commands you to trust him. This king is returning, and you're going to have to give an account to him if you do not trust him, and he will judge you for all of your sins. Either he is judged for your sin or you're, you're going to be judged for your sin. If you don't trust him. So, again, pleading for repentance and faith. And again, that's just a br- brief sketch there. But that's, that's just some headings there for you to kind of hang some thoughts on. But just because you have these headings then, that doesn't mean that the, that's the most natural place to start you know, kind of starting on number one every time. So somebody's bleeding to you and then you talk about them about the self-existence of God. It's like, okay, we can get there, but what I like to think about it is, let's take our last example of the person who's, who's bleeding with their difficult experience. I start with number two. I start with man, with sin that they're describing to me, because they're typically not describing to me in, in, in the language of sin. There's problems, difficulties. I start there, and I help them think of it in the Bible's categories, or at least that's my goal. If someone's viciously angry at a parent for an emotional abuse, I'm often going to try to help them see that the Bible has a category for being abused. That the world's full of evil, and evil people perpetrate evil on others. That is a category. That happens. But then I'll often help them see that we're not only victims of the wrong of others, but we are also victimizers too. 
So if they're spewing venom, they're spewing anger out of their heart, we've got to help them see that that anger is a response to the sin that's, that's been perpetrated against them. So we're the victimizers too. We too have perpetrated what the Bible calls sin. And that sin comes from our hearts. And the anger in our hearts at being sinned against is sin too. And we are responsible for that. And I think, the reason I think it's so important to start here is because we're going to get back to God, but in our therapeutic culture, most people have been deceived into thinking that their sin problems are not their problems. They're either biological, they need to be medicated, or they are outside of them, caused by some other person, on them. And so the common denominator, whatever it is, is they are not at fault. And that is squarely against what the Bible says. And it's like the hindrance for them to come to faith in Christ. If they're unwilling to own and take responsibility for their sin. So I'll start on the responsibility and, and, and trying to help someone see that they're responsible for their transgression and not to just try to mute the guilt that they feel. And once I try to get people to see, both from my own life and their life, that we are responsible for our sin, then I'll go backwards to the one that we've ultimately sinned against, God. So why does, what is sin? We can't understand sin apart from understanding God. So we're created by a transcendent, eternal, holy, good God. We've sinned against Him. And we've sinned because we are sinners. It's our, it's our fallen nature. And I'll probably talk a bit about why God created us in the first place as humans. That's very important that we understand that and that we're able to articulate that to people especially in like the post-Christian world that we live in. We've been rebelling against him. You know, I try to help them see that. We've been wearing clothes. Just think about it. We've been uh, dying ever since that day. For animals, how do we wear clothes, you know? Why do we feel shame? But then, usually, while I'm in Genesis 1 through 3, I'll talk about the promise of the Son. It's right there, chapter 3. So it's easy. I don't have to turn a bunch of places. I'll talk about this one who's foretold to come to deal with the sin, and then I'll discuss how that's ultimately found in Jesus of Nazareth. I'm going to obviously explain all those things. Explain that he was the Messiah. What that means. He's the king of the world. God sent him, and, and it was actually God himself. But instead of judging us as the king should have, he died for us. He died in our place. He, took our, he was our substitute. And all those things that, we, that we've talked about before. Then I'll usually talk about what he commands or how he commands us to respond to the news, to what he's done. So we'll kind of go in that track. And that's the gist. So that's just one way of doing it in an interpersonal conversation. And just to be clear, you know, if I have my druthers, I don't do that all in one conversation. I try to create that relationship, get that person to agree to study the Bible with me for a few weeks. And then that has so many advantages because you can think ahead now. Um, you don't put all this pressure on you to like get the conversation done and you don't drown them in information. You don't talk at them, um, which that's the last thing I'm going to say. All right. Try to avoid talking at unbelievers okay, and monologuing at them when I'm in conversation with them. When we share the gospel, we want to make sure that people are understanding what we are saying before we're moving on. If they don't understand, then we can't move forward. Once they understand, then we want to find out if they agree with what we're saying. Do you agree with what I'm saying? Is there pushback to what I'm saying? I'll often ask that question, even with Christians, you know, for counseling, like, hey, level with me here. And what I, what I say, are you agreeing with this? Or not. And sometimes people are just too nice to openly express disagreement. And they'll just kind of be content to nod and move on. Especially in our pluralistic culture. Where like whatever's right for you is right for you. And it's not what it, you know, it can all be right. And, you know, that's not true. So we kind of have to go after that. So we've got to love them enough to, to see if they've bought in or not. And then try to determine if they haven't what's hindering it. And then, number three, if they say they do agree, then we need to ask what they're going to do about it. Faith is more than mental assent. 
If they're going to trust Christ, it's a life of following Christ. There is cost to this life. Now, there's cost. There's an eternal reward that far outstrips any cost that we're going to have to give to Christ. But Christ definitely fronted the cost in his gospel presentations. So we don't want to, again, sugarcoat the life to come or the life that's, that's, that they're going to enter into. It often gets harder. But there is eternal reward coming. Now, as you're sharing, and particularly after you've shared, you're likely going to be plagued with thoughts about what you said, what you could have said, how you said it, how you wish you had said it differently. And I know how that goes. So my next uh, practice, the next to last one here, number eight, is a refreshing one. And I've got one paragraph in my notes, so it'll be really quick. Trust Christ. Remember what we said in the beginning. God is sovereign in conversion. And have that sweet conviction like Paul did in 1 Corinthians 3, where he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Paul expended a lot of energy evangelizing. And he laid his head down on his bed at night and slept. Because he knew that God gives the growth. So like that parable that Jesus says, sow the seed and go to sleep. Sow and sleep. Sow and sleep. That's what a farmer does. Doesn't know how it grows, Jesus said. Sow and sleep. Trust God with your evangelism, even if you think you blew it. Don't get discouraged. That's what Satan wants. Your weaknesses cannot thwart the purposes of God. So you just keep trying to be faithful. All right. And finally, last practice is be yourself. When you're sharing the gospel, don't try to be somebody else. It's tempting to look across the room to the person that you perceive as faithful, faithful in evangelism, and wish that you were just like that, that girl or that guy. Man, if I was just bold like her, if I was just articulate like that guy, you know, if I just knew the Bible like him. Next week, we're going to look a little more carefully at how we evangelize together as a body with our various gifts contributing to the work. But for now, I just want to point out that God has designed us all differently and he has given us the very gifts that we all have. We're different by his design and for his purpose, according to his purpose. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose, God made no mistakes, in other words, and He's wired you. So do you have sinful fear that you need to repent of? Of course. But I'm not talking about your sin here. We're talking about gifts and the way God's wired you being yourself. I'm talking about how He's wired you, the gifts He's given you. So don't envy others, but do seek to be strengthened by their example. And when you evangelize, just trust God and be yourself. Because He knows what He's doing. Remember, back to last week here. He put you in that desk right next to that other person. He put you in that family with that unbelieving family member. He knows what he's doing. He saved you for a purpose, and you can trust him in that, even if you're not the most winsome evangelist. All right? So those are nine practices that will help us kind of get going, kind of practically, in evangelism. And again, I'm sure you're doing some of these already, but maybe the one that is a little bit weak or maybe non-existent, and shore that one up. And next week, we're going to wrap up the, uh, the series by thinking through strategies for sharing the gospel together. We kind of get to the most kind of practical. Maybe we can hit some... I'm not going to out-talk myself here. I actually haven't written this lesson yet. So, it's going to be something in the line. I've got lots of things I want to talk about, but you can obviously see how I can pack it in, okay? Um, Lots of things when it comes to strategies and how we think about outreach in the church and programs for evangelism versus our individual responsibility. Uh, all that stuff, I'm going to kind of shake it up and then we'll see, we'll see what comes out. All right? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege of being your ambassadors. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would forgive us for our fear. We're thankful for your patience. We're thankful for your desire to reach the nations that far outstrips our desire. 
And even as I was reading back through the book of Acts this week, just thinking about some of those things, just how often you're, you're the one that's propelling the mission. You brought a wave of suffering in the Jerusalem church that was filled with apostles. And that's why the gospel spread, because they were fleeing to the next phase of the mission. And we know that you're in control of this and that your purposes won't fail, but we do want to be faithful. So we pray that you would help us to be proactive, confident, humble, um, and like the woman at the well, to come and see, come and see Christ, come and know the one who has saved us. And uh, that's our prayer. We pray that you would um, just equip us to that end in Jesus' name.